This sermon was recorded at the Johnson County Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Good morning. Uh, The scripture reading for this morning is Matthew chapter 26, verses 57 through 68, and can be found on page 831 in your pew Bible. Matthew chapter 26, verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat down with, or he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they might put him to death. But they found none though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? They answered, he, or you have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Good morning, everyone. Hey, my name is Mark and I'm one of the pastors here. And I just want to say welcome. We're glad that you're here. Um, I want to I start uh, this way this morning. There's no question, or there, there should be no question, for the Christian about who's in charge. Isaiah 9 says, Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. For the Christian, there's no question who this is referring to. You see, we aren't the only people in the world that long for good rulership. Proverbs 29.2 says, when the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people groan. And who could be more righteous or a more righteous ruler than the righteous one? 
the completely righteous one, Christ, the anointed ruler of God, who is God. In the Old Testament, the people of God rejected the rule and authority of Yahweh and asked for their own king so that they could be just like all the other pagan nations that surrounded them. And many times we're no different. Half of the time we long for a good king and half of the time we long for our own king or for us to be king. We want a king that will do what we want, how we want, and when we want it. All together over the course of Israel's history, they watched over 40 monarchs come and go. Over 40. And out of those 40, David and his rule is marked as a type of rule that is to come. David was a man after God's own heart, and yet he was an adulterer and a murderer. And late in his life, he was a failure as a father to his own sons. The sin of David teaches us a lot of things. The story of his life can teach us many good and right lessons, but there's no lesson to learn from David's life. There's no, there's nothing uh, good about his life or something evil about his life that we can learn other than the lesson that we need a better king. You and I need a better king than King David. The best that the world of men can offer us isn't good enough. Solomon isn't wise enough and David isn't benevolent enough. The best that the world can drum up will not give you the kind of ruler that you need because, because Redeemer family, we're naturally always aiming our allegiance somewhere. We assign it to something, towards someone or something. You already direct all of your loyalty and, and, and allegiance towards something. And if it isn't primarily and foundationally King Jesus, then I don't care what it is, it will fail you. It will let you down. See, we're made to rule and we're made to be ruled. So we'll always prop up leaders. And if the allegiance of our heart is with false gods of our day, they will fail us always. If our hope is in our candidates, They'll fail us. If your hope is in your money, it will let you down. Are you ruled by your passions? The scriptures tell us that those will lead us to destruction. Are you ruled by approval seeking? It will leave you empty. Allegiance to Jesus gives you the ability to be a good follower of lesser kings and lesser rulers right now. Allegiance to Jesus allows you to not be grasping for some version of salvation here and now through the policies and programs of whoever our candidates or heroes might be. Allegiance to King Jesus is the only way to be free. Free from anxiety, free from pressure to decide, free from the fear of the future, free from nail-biting worry, free from slavery to our sins. Allegiance to Jesus is safe harbor. Let yourself be truly safe in the refuge that the authority of the King, Jesus, who's reigning, provides for you in his kingdom, in his program, his rule, his reign. James chapter four says, submit yourself therefore to God. 
Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Because if you don't submit yourself to God, you'll be submitting yourself to someone else. The Bible's, also, Bible's clear that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So if you're not submitted to Christ, then you're submitted to the God of this world. It isn't whether or not we, we're being ruled by something. The question is, which ruler will we be submitted to? That's the real question. And the Lord Jesus Christ reigns. He reigns. He reigns right now. And I want to demonstrate the implications of his reign in four movements. We're in a series called Jesus Is. And this week, the title is Jesus Is Reigning. And I want to, I want to show that to us through uh, four movements. The first one is, uh, is that God's plan from the beginning was to establish a relationship with his people and to rule them and rule with them as well. Second, from the outset of the fall, there's promised a reclaiming of God's rule and his relationship with creation. Then third, Jesus claims to be God's anointed king. And fourth, the reign of Christ is now. Is now. So, Point number one, from the beginning, it was God's plan to establish a relationship with his people and rule with them, rule with them and to rule them. In Genesis chapter one, God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. That's what God said in the beginning. He said, let's make man, but let's make him different. He's not going to be like the fish or the livestock or the birds. He's going to rule over those other creatures that I've made. And then Genesis continues. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female created he them. Then God blesses them. He speaks a blessing over his creation and he gives them an instruction. First he says, be fruitful and multiply. And then he says, fill the earth, fill the earth and subdue the earth and have dominion over the earth. This is called the creation mandate or the cultural mandate by theologians. But before we go further, I want us to think about that concept of kingship or rule or kingdom or reigning. Because when we think about Jesus as king or Jesus as reigning or the kingdom of God, we should understand that we, that we use that idea in a few different ways and it's used in the scriptures in a few different ways. We can think of a kingdom as a domain or as a realm. We can think of the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, for instance, where rule or reign is in over a realm or a certain domain, a place where the king is in charge. And the Bible does use the concept that way. But we also have things like 
the prince of the power of the air and the God of this world blinding the hearts of unbelievers. So how does Jesus's reign interact with that reign? Is he in charge or isn't he in charge? And that's a fair question to ask. There's also the concept of God's sovereignty, his providential rule over everything. And it's true to speak of God's reign even here in the garden in that way, over all of history. Even though God delegates, God empowers, God delegates Adam and Eve to rule as his vice regents, God's still the one with sovereign power overarching over everything. There's nothing outside the scope of God's all-powerful, all-present, all-knowing rule and reign over everything, all that is. And the reason I want to acknowledge those differences in understanding is because ultimately, as you think of God's power and sovereign rule over the entire cosmos, we also have his redemptive plans working out through time and real history in the lives of human beings. God was ruling then when he made everything. And then he made man to rule with him and to be with him. And mankind fell. He vandalized and ruined everything. And we have these two kind of bookends in the Bible that structure it. We have God with man in the garden. And then we can see in Revelation that God is with man again in new creation. And most of what we deal with in the Bible is this journey from the bookend of the fall to the inauguration of his kingdom and his righteousness and justice made possible by Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension until we get to see the full consummation of the kingdom fully and completely realized in Christ's return. But in the beginning, God made mankind to be with him and to rule his world, and sin broke everything. We do relationships poorly, and we aren't very good rulers anymore either. We break relationships, we're sinful and anxious and selfish, and the fall is most violently expressed in how we treat each other, how we treat other people. The first murder was out of envy and jealousy. Sin gives birth to death. But from the book of Genesis, throughout the Old Testament, God says over and over and over again that he's going to fix things. In prophetic promises throughout the Old Testament, he assures his covenant people that he's going to undo the fall and all of its consequences. And that brings me to the second movement this morning. Beginning in Genesis chapter 49, God starts making promises, detailed promises related to the concept of, of ruling or reigning or kingship. Genesis 49 verse 10 says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall all and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples here god begins to associate a dynasty a royal rulership the reestablishment of and the and the continuation of a lasting kingdom and a king that will be hopeful and true and just and good. And when that kingdom shows up, everybody will rejoice. 
From the beginning, God begins to say, you can see the utter devastation. You can see, beginning with the fall, you can see all the complete corruption of mankind and creation. You can see it everywhere. You see it rusting and breaking down. And he says, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to fix all of it. Since the fall, relationships have been broken, both with each other and with God. Our relationships with people around us are broken. And people are hateful and violent and sadistic and maniacal. Because of the fall, many times life is how Thomas Hobbes describes it in his historical work, Leviathan, when he says, man is subject to continual fear and danger of violent deaths. The the life of man is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. And without the commitment of God to fix this, without his commitment and his common grace, in spite of the wickedness of mankind, his mercy toward us and his long-suffering posture towards us, without God acting on our behalf, we're doomed. Humanity is doomed. God doesn't leave us to that end, however. He promises to bring a good and righteous order back to everything. And he makes these promises throughout the Old Testament over and over and over again. After God raises up Saul to be king, that ultimately establishes the rule of David. God promises David that someone from his lineage will always rule. So reference to David's kingship and his heir is shorthand for God fulfilling his total ruling promises for his people. And the Psalms are full of God's promises to establish a David-like king to rule and reign with justice and righteousness. Psalm 2, 7 through 9 says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Psalm 8, 4 through 6 says, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands and you have put all things under his feet. Psalm 45, 6 and 7 says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Psalm 72, 1, 8 and 17 says, Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. May his name endure, his fame continue as long as the sun. May may people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Psalm 110, 1 through 2 says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Promise after promise after promise. Specifically connected to rule and reign. Specifically related to sitting 
at the right hand of power and majesty. The Old Testament is full of an abiding kind of longing and aching and yearning to see God reclaim rule and dominion over everything. And this isn't a one-off concept. The scriptures are dripping with the descriptions of both the state of order and the state of relationships when God's rule is fully established. And it's not like we are right now. The kingship and rule that's promised throughout the scriptures isn't about getting tax breaks. And it isn't about getting your student loans forgiven. Jesus actually doesn't promise to give us what we want at all. He just promises that we'll suffer just like he suffered. But the longings that we have are for something deeper than your own personal well-being. The yearning inside of believers is a deep, abiding yearning for God's goodness and glory and rule to be completely released and to permeate everything about living at all. The promises of God's anointed king in Isaiah are about how under his kingship and rule, the very nature, the essence, the nature of things is completely renewed and rearranged. Jesus isn't interested in being our political candidate, but when he's Lord of your life, that changes everything. The center, the core, the nature of your heart and life changes. Isaiah 65, 25 says, The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and the dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. The core the center, the very nature in this picture is transformed from the inside out. Wolves and lambs don't act this way. They don't hang out together. Wolves eat lambs, and lambs run away from wolves. Lambs are terrified of the violence that wolves are supposed to inflict. It's in their instincts. It's inside them. It's in their very natures for wolves to rip lambs to pieces the same way that leopards have spots. And what strength do we have to change our spots? It's the way things are. But this is the depth the full depth of change. This is the depth of transformation. This is the weight and glory of this king and his kingdom. The nature of his people is completely transformed. The promise for this kingdom's not because God's insecure and needs followers or needs peasants to pay him tribute. The promise is wholesale. The promise is whole person. The promise is that all the way to the bottom, everything's going to be fixed and renewed and reconstituted. God's not revving us up with hype and empty promises so that we'll vote for him. He doesn't need our vote. He's wetting our appetites. He's stirring up anticipation. He's giving us a trailer, a sneak peek for the epic and, and complete reconfiguration of the entire universe. 
When your affections aren't divided anymore, and you don't have to wrestle with them. They aim where they're supposed to be aimed, where your flesh isn't always fighting against the spirit because it's finally dead, like dead, dead, all the way dead. And you don't have to fight it anymore. He wants us to be bolstered and built up by the fact that his kingdom, his rule, means top to bottom, back to front, all the way up and all the way down, everything, everything, everything's changed. Changed, like changed, changed. Changed in the very center, core nature of things. That's what he's promising. That's what he's up to. And Jesus in this text has the audacity to look at the high priest and say, I'm the fulfillment of that. Jesus knows what he's doing. He knows what he's saying and the implications that it has, especially for his audience. He knows that it's going to cause problems for him. Jesus knows what he's doing. In, in Daniel chapter 7, it says, I saw night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. Sound familiar? And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom, one that shall never be destroyed. This passage gives the best, clearest kind of backdrop to Jesus's statement in our text this morning. Jesus tells the high priest, hey, what's going on right now, all these events that are unfolding in front of your face, my death, and soon to be resurrection and exaltation are the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7. And the religious leaders are absolutely enraged, enraged by this claim. And they should be, because they're right. This is either egregious blasphemy or it's the truth. Or it's the truth. And that's how Jesus spoke. And that is how he is still speaking right now. Either what he said was outrageous in its hubris or it was outrageous in its truth. Jesus didn't make room for you to be on the fence. He doesn't make any room for us to be on the fence about him then and he doesn't do it now. You're either with him or you're against him, he says. And he claims, he claims in more places than just here to be the anointed deliverer, the anointed Messiah, the suffering servant. In Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, it says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Matthew 9, 35 says, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of God's kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Matthew 12, 28 says, but if it is by the spirit of God that I drive out demons, this is Jesus speaking, if it's by the spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus talked about his own ministry as being the exact inbreaking of the kingdom of God in real time and in real history. And the events surrounding his death are the exact events that must take place to secure his place as the king. 
to inaugurate his kingdom. In the text today, he looks at this Jewish priest and he says, this is only ensuring the inevitable. My kingdom can't be stopped. And all the crowds and all the rulers and all the authorities thought that they were beating and scourging and crucifying an innocent troublemaker. Pilate thought this is the victim of some mob violence in front of me. But this suffering that Jesus suffered, also known as his passion, right? We'll celebrate that during Holy Week, the week leading up to Easter. Jesus is suffering and his torture is his glorification. The path that Jesus takes in the Gospels, the path that he takes, the road he walks with the cross on his back, the Golgotha, Golgotha road that Jesus Christ walks truly is the road to his own coronation. I mean, the upside down and inside out nature of this moment is stupefying. It is breathtaking and it's so unlike us that it is confusing. It's bewildering. Caiaphas thinks that he's going to squash this imposter like a bug. And Jesus says, everything you're doing is securing my reign and rule and authority. From now on, I'll be seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And indeed, he did what he came to do. Jesus accomplished what he came to do. And this moves me to my fourth point. The rule of the king has been inaugurated. In the Gospel of Matthew, we see the Great Commission. But what's happening in the Great Commission is, has more dimensions to it and more texture to it than merely a kind of flat, forward instruction to communicate the Gospel to people who haven't heard it. It's not about information. It's about more than information. That's an, an ingredient. But what's happening in the Great Commission is Jesus is giving his own version of the creation mandate. He's giving his own version of the cultural mandate from Genesis 1. The Great Commission is the cultural mandate for recreation. You can think of it as the recreation instructions. Matthew 28, 16 through 18 says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some, some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, baptizing them, them in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. All authority, all of it, all authority has been given to Jesus. And he says that first. He gives instructions, yes, but the, the instructions are on a foundational reality. Our marching orders are built on top of the authority of Jesus. Of Jesus. Your obedience, your worship, the arrangement and orientation of your life is because of Christ's authority. Your giving, your money, your ministries that you support is because Christ has all authority. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not things that are on the earth. Jesus himself says that his kingdom, his kingdom, is not of this world. Otherwise, his followers would be fighting. 
So setting our mind on things above is how we implement kingdom realities on the earth right now. Christ's kingdom isn't of this world, but doing things in this world is how we usher in the otherworldly kingdom. The way The way we do kingdom work is through our hands and our feet because our hands and our feet are not separate from our hearts and our minds. Our spiritual work is worked out in our physical realities. We don't wrestle with flesh and blood, Paul says. We don't wrestle with flesh and blood. And yet he also says we do beat our bodies and make them our slaves to obey Christ. Same guy said both things. We use our physical brain to control our minds, to make our bodies slaves of righteousness. Jesus' kingdom isn't of this world, but it is connected to your body, and it is demonstrated by your thoughts and actions. Paul even says that we aren't our own. We don't belong to ourselves. We were bought with a price, and that has implications. We're bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So you fight the fight of faith to follow Jesus, to make disciples, to lead and love your family, to serve your community, and to share your faith with other people. The kingdom, the kingdom, the manifestation of Christ's reign is increased in our obedience and our personal sanctification. It's true that the primary way that Jesus expresses his kingdom reign in this age is through the spiritual ministry of the church, and we aren't Gnostics as a people. That means that we don't divide our worldview into physical things and spiritual things and put all the weight on the, phys- or on the spiritual and just throw out all the physical realities. The most important realities of the kingdom of God are spiritual in nature, and all spiritual realities in this life are wedded to physical realities. Parenting your children is a spiritual activity. Spiritual disciplines are a physical activity. Spiritual growth and godliness has physical consequences. Love does things. Obedience from the heart is the physical action of loving. Keeping your commitments is a spiritual activity. Killing sin is a spiritual activity with physical outworking. Cleaning your room is a spiritual activity. And we can participate in those activities in hollow ways and in self-righteous ways and in pharisaical ways but we can't do spiritual activity without employing the body, without mastering the body. Ask yourself this morning, where in your life is the rule of King Jesus? Where is your spoken allegiance to the king divorced from how you're acting or how you're obeying? Where are you over-spiritualizing something so that it can be just an idea with no action required? Or where are you under-spiritualizing the weight of your habits and your actions and how they serve your spiritual health? Light is invading darkness, and that looks like simple, faithful, God-honoring love and obedience. Faith looks like something. It looks like something. 
And I don't want us to think that we can have spiritual concerns that cause us to throw off the constraints of the instruction of the word of God. Jesus, Jesus is winning. He's winning. Jesus is reigning through his church. The kingdom of God is counterintuitive and unexpected. It's like a mustard seed. It's like leaven that eventually works its way through every single molecule. In Ephesians 4, it says that God provided different gifts in the church to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to maturity, to the measure of the stature of fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine." The building up of the church into maturity is how Christ establishes his reign and it's how he's spreading it throughout the globe into all people groups, in all tongues, in all tribes, in all nations. Jesus is the king promised throughout the Old Testament that would put all things back together again and fulfill all the purposes of God from the beginning to be with us and to rule over us and for us to rule with him over creation. I'm going to close this morning by by reading Revelation 5, 1 through 10. Then Then I saw the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And together they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and every language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom. You've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Christ is the king of that kingdom, and he reigns. It isn't consummated yet, but it is inaugurated, and you and I are a part of that kingdom with Christ forever, forever.
Amen. As we move to, this part of our, to the part of our service where we take communion, let me read from 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. If you're putting all of your hope in Jesus Christ to make you right before God, then we invite you this morning to take communion. If you place your faith in Jesus for your own salvation, for his imputed righteousness on your behalf, we invite you to come down and take communion. The way we do that at Redeemer Fellowship is we break a piece of bread off and we dip it into a cup. The stoneware cups are wine and the glassware is juice. We'll have two stations down in front of me and then a station up in the balcony and one station further over here to the left that is gluten-free and single serve. In addition to that, we'll also have prayer ministers over here to my left underneath this stained glass window who would love to pray for anybody, for anything, any Sunday. They're there every single Sunday. We end our services this way to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim that to the watching world and we look each other in the eye and say, this is Christ's body broken for you and this is his blood shed for your life. We do this weekly because we need it even more than weekly. Amen? I'm going to pray for us and, and thank Christ for his sacrifice and then the servers are going to come forward and the musicians are going to come back up. Would you all mind bowing your heads with me as I pray? Lord Jesus, we worship you as king and ruler, reigning king of the universe. Would you, by your spirit, open our eyes to places that we are clutching something that we should let go? or defending ourselves against you taking more of our lives, more of our hearts, more of our affection, more of our plans, more of our daydreams, more of our money, more of our stuff. Jesus, by your spirit, would you convict us? Convict us, set us free. Take more ground in our hearts so we stay away Stay away from the seat that only you should have as the king of our lives. Sink that into our hearts a little deeper this morning by the power of your spirit and through your immense, immeasurable, unbelievable grace. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.